0: Good morning, my name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors in the life of uh, Seven Mile Road. I am tied, as Matt said, to the uh, site in Malden, um, and so we miss some of you guys dearly. I see a lot of new faces, which is awesome, um, so I'm glad you guys are on mission here in Melrose as well. Um, today, I want to preach to you on Luke 18, but before we do that, uh, let me just open us in prayer. Father, we beg of you to open up these scriptures. God, we ask your spirit to enlighten our hearts. God, that we would see the truth. God, that we would be encouraged to persevere in our prayers. That even in facing the fence of unanswered prayer, God, that we could step through that into the harvest of Promised harvest of a praying life. God, give us that grace today. In your name we pray. Amen. So, if you can turn your Bibles to Luke 18, that's where we're going to start. Good gaji. Good gaji. My Korean brothers in this room know what that means. It's a Korean phrase that means till the end. I've been ingrained with this phrase since birth. Um my parents were actually at the service uh in Malden this morning. Um quick side story, they were appalled that I was not wearing a suit and a robe. Um but I'm glad they're not here so they can, don't have to do that to me. Um but when I was growing up as a kid, I heard that a lot. Uh doing my homework, being distracted, watching TV, they would come to me and say, "Good until the end, do your homework." Or when I wanted to to quit piano lessons, I think right around the sixth grade, I think I was too cool. Um, I wanted to quit, but they said, no, they tried to convince me, if you keep doing it, you can really become a famous person one day, like all these other Korean kids that play piano. And (laughs) they said, good god, But I did not listen to them, I gave up. I can kind of play piano, but not really. I wasn't unfamiliar with the phrase. I knew what it meant. But it wasn't until my college years, that I really began to know what these words meant for my life. Good Until the end. You see, I was a pagan for about 18 years apart from God, far from him. I had not come to know the truth of the gospel until I was 18. And it was that summer before my first year of college that I experienced the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that I was a sinner in need of the grace of God that I was deep into my sin, that I was far from Him, an enemy of Him, but yet Jesus Christ came, lived a life, died to death, resurrected from the grave, and won my heart. And so in this, when I came to college, joined a college fellowship right away my first year, the first thing I did was go out and buy an NIV study Bible. You guys remember those, the big blue ones? I read it from cover to cover. Read that thing, loved it, loved Jesus. I also loved going to church and um, singing songs and praising with my brothers and sisters. And I was in a charismatic church, so I did what all good charismatics do. I jumped up and down, I clapped really loud, and just made a ruckus. We were having fun. But one of my favorite things was to pray with the church. My favorite things was to spend hours in prayer with the church and I ask myself now like what got into me And to be honest the gospel of Jesus Christ had captured my heart and I just wanted to spend as much time with him and I couldn't get over the fact that God saved me a sinner I was far from him I was deep into my sin I couldn't begin to tell you some of the 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 death the sins that had a death grip on my soul and I was running away from God. I was farther than far from God, but yet God pursued after me and he, he got to me. He won me over and I was enthralled with the gospel and the truth of it and I couldn't help but spend time in prayer and just depending and leaning on God. Now the college fellowship that I attended was um, mostly Korean and if you know anything about the Korean church or have read a little bit about it, um, we got one thing right. I think we, we know how to pray, and that's just ingrained in our culture. Um, they know how to do other things, but prayer was one of the things that they got right. So for my early years, I was discipled in the way of prayer from really godly uh, men and women. And I was entrenched in a church culture that really said that prayer was one of the essential parts of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Not just in talk, but they really acted upon it. Let me just give you a, a brief rundown of my schedule. Um, in this church. On Sunday morning, we would gather together um, as a church body, of course, to worship and pray corporately as a church. Sunday night, we would come back to church um, and pray for our missionaries for about two hours. Then during the weekday, um, all the weekdays, we would wake up at 6 a.m. in the morning to go to the church and pray for about an hour. One of those weeknights, we would meet in smaller communities to worship and pray together. Um, On Wednesday nights, we would meet back at the church for an all-night prayer meeting from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. and yes some people that came to that meeting went to morning prayer Thursday morning at 6 a.m. and then on Thursday at at night we would come together and pray from 7 to 10 as a church together and then on Friday we would come back to church to worship and pray together and then some of us on Saturday would meet together in the morning to pray from 9 to God knows when and we would probably end around noon but we would gather together to pray, and we just did this week after week after week. And I don't want to say this to put the Korean church on the pedestal. I want you to get an idea of kind of my life and what it looked like for me um, in college as I was praying and learning how to pray and how these words that I'm about to preach to you really became true to me. I spent a good chunk of my life in college in prayer. And in those years... Uh, one of the formative mentors of mine would speak to me the, these words, Good Gaji. She would say, Good Gaji, until the end. She was this frail Korean lady. Um, she had an incredible gift of prayer and intercession, and I'm sure some of us have some of these people in our lives. And she would always come to me and say while I was praying, just good Gaji, until the end. And I got frustrated with it the more and more I began to pray and really understand what it meant to pray. Because I would be praying for something and it just didn't feel like I was getting an answer. I didn't get a clarity on something. I would be praying for my friends and my family and situations in my life and it just didn't feel like I was getting anywhere. When I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, when I was asking God to direct me and I wasn't getting a clear answer and she would say, Good God, gee, I would just be frustrated. When I was a youth pastor and I was, you know, um, taking these youth group kids out to dinner, none of them would have money, obviously, so I would have to spot them, and I would not know where my next rent check was going to come from, and I would be praying, and she'd say, "Good until the end, and I got frustrated. When I was burnt out from ministry, and I just wanted to get out from under it all, just wanted to go away to an island somewhere and just enjoy my life, she would say, "good until the end. And I just got frustrated more and more and more. I didn't understand why she would say that. It was so easy to say, that phrase is so easy to say, until the end, but so hard to apply. How could you persevere in a prayer when you all you hear is your own voice crying out for the same thing over and over and over again and you know, nothing was being done? It was, I was just met with silence. I didn't get it. I didn't get why she would say, good God, she kept telling me till the end. Just didn't make any sense to me. Just makes matters worse, I didn't get any answers to my prayers. I'm sure, I'm guessing, some of us have felt that frustration as we pray. Not getting any answers to our prayers. Meeting that wall and getting frustrated that all we're being met with is silence. It's one of those hopeless things, if we really think about it, that we get caught up in the fact that we've been praying for this one thing and nothing is being done about it. We don't get a clear answer. We don't get to witness anything happen. We get discouraged. We give up. As the scripture tells, we lose heart. We've been preaching this summer on the promise of a praying life and what keeps us out. Our hope is that we would share with you the promise, the lavish harvest of a praying life and then present to you these fences, these sharp, prickly, barbed wire fences that keep us out from going into this harvest and seeing the fruitfulness of a praying life. And today's fence is the fence of unanswered prayer. It's the fence of unanswered prayer. When we we meet this fence, many of us fall, I think, into one of two categories. I think we either doubt God or doubt ourselves. We either question who God is or question ourselves. We either question God by asking things like, is God really going to do what he says? Is God really going to answer my prayers? Does God really hear me? Is God really able to do any of the things that I've been asking for? You felt what it's like to question God, I'm sure. Some of us fall into another trap. When prayers go unanswered, we, we begin to doubt ourselves or question ourselves. We begin to ask questions like, this really for me i I don't know if i'm praying right i don't know if i'm doing this thing right maybe i'm not cut up for this maybe i'm not holy enough maybe my prayers aren't good enough there's no point i'm just going to give up i'm not going to do this anymore when met with unanswered prayer we question god we doubt ourselves what i hope to convey to you today is what jesus tells us in verse 1 of luke 18 it says jesus told this parable what we're about to go through He says, to the effect that we would always pray and not lose heart. So Seven Mile Road, the big idea today is we ought always to pray and not lose heart. Okay, So from beginning from verse 1, let's unpack this a little bit. In verse 1, the author Luke tells us the purpose of the next eight verses that are going to come. It's very clear. Jesus tells us this parable for the purpose that we would not lose heart. And that we uh, would pray always. Jesus is very, very clear. We can even translate this, as, as Matt was reading, uh, with even stronger language. We can read this and say, we need always to pray and never lose heart. And so I want to impress upon you the, the emphasis that Jesus is putting on this parable as he gets into t- telling this parable. We need always to pray and never lose heart. Let's unpack that powerful statement. Uh, Like a typical parable of Jesus, he kind of lays out the story with um, very clear characters, um, two contrasting characters. He tells us that in this small town that there's this judge, that this judge is one who neither fears God or respects man. Okay, let's stop there. This dude was a very unrighteous dude. How do we know that? Because in verse 4, he says it himself. He says, I neither fear God nor respect man. That is a very proud man about his unrighteousness. He says it blatantly to all people, says, I neither fear God nor respect man. There's no doubt about it. And you know that's pretty bad when that's his excuse for not doing his job. In that time, judges were appointed to... to, um, act justly. They were appointed to fear God because if they were not to act justly, if they were to do injustice or act uh, wrongly, they would be judged by God. Yet this man comes out in verse four and says blatantly, I do not fear God. I do not respect man. This was a bad, bad dude. Judges um, in that time were also chiefs over their society, and this is Seemingly a small city, because he was the lone judge that the widow went to. And the fact that he was a judge of a small city probably doesn't help because judges were lifted high in the society. They had powers, they had privileges. And if there were no other judges, you can probably guess he was corrupted in a lot of ways. That power got to him. In that same small town, it says, the contrasting character, there was a widow. Widows in that time were um, the model oppressed people they were a very oppressed people they were um, protected legally because they couldn't provide for themselves they had no means to provide for themselves and so by law the judge was supposed to hear the case of a widow um, they were and it seems like in this, in this story that this widow has some sort of enemy some sort of adversary that's going after her that wants something from her and so this particular widow goes to and turns to the one person that's bound by law to hear her out with her um, case. It's the judge. The judge was required to hear her side of the story. But it says the unrighteous judge would not come to the aid of the widow. She would, he would hear what the widow had to say but would not act. The text tells us that the widow came to him continually asking the same thing. He sa- she says, Give me justice against my adversary. It was like this widow would show up to the, the judge's house in the morning, just camp out there, wait till the judge wakes up in the morning to go to work. And right when he walks out the do- door, the widow would say, Give me justice against my adversary. The judge would walk right past her, run to work. After hearing some morning cases and some sessions, he would have lunch, and the widow would probably come wherever he is and say, Give me justice. With my advers- against my adversary. And the judge would probably get her security guard to take her away, and as she's being taken away, she would scream, give me justice against my adversary. And as the judge walks home after a long day, on his road, there's the widow, again, in a tired voice, saying, give me justice against my adversary. Day after day, after month after month, the widow has one request, Give me justice against my adversary. It was this widow that would persist to keep asking. I want us to hear a couple things about this widow's prayer. First, she prays for justice. She doesn't pray for a bigger home so that she can shack up in there and hide from her adversary. She doesn't pray for a caravan out of the city so that she can escape her adversary. She just prays for the right thing to be done, what's fair and good. She wants justice to be done. Kind of makes you think about your own prayers, right? Do we pray for the right thing to be done? Do we pray for justice? Or do we pray for our want? Do we pray that justice would be done, the right thing be done, or do we pray that our wishes be granted? The widow, the weak and oppressed, And lo, had every right to ask for, you know, a bigger home or ask for um, something beyond her lot in life. But she doesn't ask for any of that. She doesn't ask for an escape. She asks for justice to be done. I I want us to also notice her persistence, her perseverance in this prayer. She had no one else in this society that would hear her out. She's a widow. So she goes to the one person she knows, that would hear her. But that one person even denies her. One person spurns her. But she s- keeps going to that one person. She had no assets to bribe this judge with. She had nothing to give him. She was left at the whim of this unrighteous judge, but she still goes to him. She's not discouraged by her, um, his denial. She goes to him and keeps pleading with him. Then verse 4 tells us what the judge does. It says, The judge refused to answer her for as long as he could, but because the widow kept bothering him, he answered. The judge's confession is really interesting if you read it. It says, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow, this small little widow, keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will stop beating me down with her continual coming. A few things here. The judge finally acts. He does something. Not only does he just do something, he gives her justice. He does what is right. If you were reading this parable after the first few lines, you would have immediately assumed that this is only going in one direction, that this judge was either going to just ignore her until she just went away, or this judge was going to do something, but do something in a very underhanded way maybe require a bribe from her, maybe give her what she wants, but in an underhanded way to get more gain from this. But he doesn't do any of that. He actually gives her justice. This man who neither feared God nor respected man gave this widow justice, the justice that was due to her. Even he was able to act with justice. And so Jesus highlights this point in verse 6. He says, hear what the unrighteous judge says, period. He he wants us all to be astounded by what the unrighteous judge just did. He gave the widow justice. We should all be shocked. We should have never seen this coming if we were reading this parable. This should have been a curveball for all of us that the judge would actually give her justice. It's also interesting to note why the judge acts in justice. Jesus tells us that the judge gave her justice so that the widow wouldn't beat him down by her continual coming. The widow's persistence was assaulting the judge. This um, phrase, beat down, beat him down, could be translated, give him a black eye, or beat and bruise him, right? The widow, this frail widow, was a boxer in the ring with the judge. Two blows to the body, one to the head. Two blows to the body, one to the head. She was methodically wearing down this judge with her um, request. And he was simply worn down, worn out, beaten up by this widow. And the judge relents and gives her justice. It wasn't out of his benevolence, his goodness of heart, or his uprightness that he acts in justice. It was just simply because he was beaten up by this old lady. He had it coming to him and he was done. He just wanted her to be uh, done with. So then we get to the punchline in verse 7. The parable comes to a climax here. Jesus says, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. So this is where I want to spend a little bit of time here. We often fall into two traps, remember. We fall into the trap of doubting God or questioning God in in seasons of unanswered prayer. Or we fall into the trap of um, doubting ourselves or questioning ourselves when we face unanswered prayer. So I want to address the first part, the first crowd, when we lose faith in God when confronted with this fence of unanswered prayer. We ought to persist in prayer because of the character of God. Jesus uses a teaching technique here uh, that scholars call the how-much-more method. What he does is he describes the actions of this person that's of, you know, kind of low character, um, and he says, well, if he does all these things, how much more God, who is infinitely perfect and perfect in his character, would do seeing that he just did that. And so when we see this unrighteous judge act in justice, we should be like, God can do this. God will do this. God is the perfect judge. God, our Father, he will do what is right. Of course, if this unrighteous judge would act in justice. And if the unrighteous judge took very long to act and only did so because he was beaten down, how much more would God, our Father, the perfect judge, act in quickness and attention? the unrighteous judge acts contrary to his character, whereas God acts consistently with his character. You see, you see, Jesus is pointing us to the character of God and saying, look, look at God. We don't persevere because if we do it long enough, um, he'll buckle under our pressure. We don't persevere if we, you know, pray long enough, you know, he's going he's to answer us be, or because we know what we're going to get from him. We persevere in prayer, not because of any of those things. We persevere in prayer because of God's character, of who he is, because of what we know of him to be. God is unlike the righteous judge in every way. He is not bothered by our pleas. He does not begrudgingly give us justice. He does what is right and good. So when you're faced with that fence of unanswered prayer, remind yourself of the character of God. He's wise. He is wise to answer your biggest questions. He's good. He's good to give you what is best. He's in control. Your life's most out-of-control moments, He has control over them. He defends. He defends us from all evil. And He's quick. He's quick to give justice where it's demanded. You might be saying to me, Dan, you don't know the season that I've been through. You don't know the unanswered prayers in my life, how I've longed for these to be answered. I want to encourage you with what Jesus tells you today. He tells you, look at the character of God. Look at the beautiful character of God. Ask yourselves the question, what about God am I not believing? Do you still believe that God is good that he is for your good? Do you still believe that God is just and will enforce his justice in his due time and his good and perfect will? Do you still believe that God hears your prayers, that God has not turned a deaf ear to you? Do you still believe that he is the perfect judge, that he is not like the unrighteous judge? We persist not because we'll convince God of doing our will, We persist in prayer because we believe that God will be good to do his will. Seven Mile Road, we ought always to pray because God's perfect character. Second, I want to address the people that may fall into the second category of doubting ourselves or questioning ourselves. We ought always to pray and not lose heart because of the gospel. So what about when we're discouraged and we want to give up? We don't want to keep on keeping on. What do we do? What about when we're just sick of praying for the same thing over and over again, not seeing anything done, not to having any clear answers? Jesus tells us in this parable that we should not lose heart. And he takes us to the gospel to embolden our hearts, to persevere in prayer. Jesus asked this one question that I hope you can ask yourself. He says, will not God give justice to his elect?" Will not God give justice to his elect? And that's a rhetorical question. Basically, he's saying, Of course, God will give justice to his elect. Of course, God will do it. Of course. And that should fire up your soul. That should give you courage beyond belief that God would give justice to you, his chosen. He will deliver you from all evil and grant you justice. And did you hear what Jesus said about his elect, how he described them? He says, the elect who cry to him day and night. He says the elect would be ones who cry to him day and night. Why is that? Why would the elect cry to God day and night? Well, because of the gospel. Because we were once at enmity with God. We were far from him. We were brought back into relationship with him because Jesus Christ came, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died he resurrected from the grave and he was vindicated on our behalf he killed he killed sin gave us life and he saved us from our death sentence and if a perfect god would save a messed up sinful people like us how much more how much more would he give to you If an unrighteous judge comes to the aid of a widow whom he does not respect, whom he cares less about, how much more the God who vindicated you from the death sentence that you were once under. If that doesn't put fire back into your soul to pray and persevere in prayer, I don't know what will. Remember the gospel and it will embolden your heart. We are the chosen. God has loved us so much and he will hear us. He will answer us. We ought not to lose heart because of the gospel. You see, prayers don't embolden God, a cowardly God. Our persistent prayers won't embolden a cowardly God. Our persistent prayers put fire in our hearts to go forward and pursue after God that acts right, acts justly, hears us, and answers. And if you're struggling this morning and growing faint of heart and having questions and doubting, I just ask, as Jesus asks you, remember the gospel and ask these questions of yourself. Have I been praying and making this prayer an idol of mine? If God didn't grant me this thing that I've been praying for, would I I be okay with having Christ alone? Is my prayer ultimately for my good or for God's glory? What sins of mine is God confronting through this season of unanswered prayer? How might I be obedient in other areas of my life? Guys, sometimes unanswered prayer makes us more self-reliant than we ought to be, right? We take matters into our own hands. We say, okay, if God's not going to do it, I'm going to do it. But remember the example of the widow here. The widow did not go beyond her means. She went to the one person that could give her what she needed, and she pursued after him. And instead of trusting everything into her own hands and grasping things, into this person. And in the same way, when we go through these seasons of unanswered prayer, don't fall into the trap of becoming self-reliant and doing things, saying, I'm going to get it done because God's not doing anything. Trust in your maker and trust your life into his hands. Another pitfall is that when we go through unanswered prayer, that we become more introspective and more self-centered than we ought to be. Unanswered prayer makes us that way. We pity ourselves, we pity our circumstances. we pity our uh, lot in life. Instead, we ought to look and bask in the provision that God's given you. Remember the things that God has done for you. Look around you and see the kingdom of God growing and flourishing and the fruit in the kingdom. Look around to, to the people around you and see the things that God is doing in their life. And remember, let that remind you that God is good and for his people. That in his time, he will answer you. And that should prove to us that God, that our prayers do not fall on a God who has deaf ears, that he actually answers and does good for his people. Your prayers may not be answered in the time or the fashion that you want. They may not be answered in the, in the way that you want, but in his perfect time, God will be good and do his perfect will. Do we really believe that God is in charge or do we take matters into our own hands? Uh, Through college, my prayer life was really dictated by how I felt. Uh, If I was feeling good, I'd pray a lot. If I didn't, I didn't pray a lot. And it just went through that ebb and flow. But I still persevered in prayer, because, sometimes out of obligation, but because I knew in the back of my mind, I heard this um, echo, this voice of the frail old Korean lady who's saying, until the end. And I always took that to mean just grin and bear it, Dan. Just keep going, keep praying, and God will do something. Just, just do it, you know? But that's not what she meant. I realized several years later after I, I graduated that this wasn't just a blanket statement for me to see the light at the end of the tunnel and just kind of go after it. This wasn't just a blanket statement for me to say, to, for, from her to from me, to just grin and bear it. It was a declaration that she believed that the saints of God would persevere in prayer because they would be the ones who trusted and believed in the gospel. It was a declaration from her that she believed in the perfect and just God who answers her, and that she would continue praying because of God's character and because of the gospel. She was essentially saying, if the gospel is true, then we are ones who will pray until the end. And Jesus told the parable to the same effect. He says, I tell you this parable to the effect that you ought always to pray, and not lose heart. And he ends with this poignant statement at the end, which I want to end with. In verse 8, he says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Think about that. That should sting us all. Will he find faith on earth? Will he find a church that is praying and clinging to God when he comes, when he returns? Will we be the ones who continually and persevere in prayer and not, and not give up and always pray and not lose heart. And as one scholar said, prayer is the holy habit of a sanctified heart. So I pray that you, Seven Mile Road, that we, Seven Mile Road, would be ones who have sanctified hearts and we would have a habit of prayer. That we wouldn't pray to get God, but we would pray because God got us. That we would always persevere in prayer, knowing the character of God, And knowing and trusting in the gospel. So, Seven Mile Road, we ought always to pray and not lose heart. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are weak. We are weak and we give up easily, we get discouraged easily. God, I pray that you would embolden our hearts this morning with the truth of the gospel. That you would remind us of your character, of your perfect and just character. That these two things would encourage us and embolden us to pray till the end. That, Lord, that we would not give up. That we would make it a habit of our heart to be in prayer. Because, Lord, we remember that in the gospel that you have got us, and because you have got us, lead us into prayer. God, make us a people of prayer. Help us to step into the promised harvest of a praying life and to cut down these fences that are keeping us out. Won't you do that work? In your name we pray. Amen.